The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Dr. Robert Woodbury, who is a senior research professor at Baylor University, and he directs the Project on Religious and Economic Change. We'll be looking at his groundbreaking research, which makes the case that where there were Protestant Christian missionaries, there was su substantially greater development of the economy, democracy, education, health, and so on. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. Woodbury, by the way. You're welcome. Now, I discovered your work many years ago, and I was quite shocked by your findings. Uh, there was mm -hmm. a lecture that you gave a year ago that listeners can find titled The World the Missionaries Made. It is quite mind-blowing for, for me, and you argue mm -hmm. that, quote, Western modernity in its current form is profoundly shaped by religious factors, and in particular that conversionary Protestants were a crucial catalyst initiating the development and spread of religious liberty, mass education, mass printing, newspapers, voluntary organizations, most major colonial reforms, and the codification of legal protections for non-whites in the 19th and early 20th centuries, end quote. And you back this up with hard data and statistics. Uh, we'll get to criticisms uh, of this as well, um, but sure. you know, often the world tries to find ways to understand how to improve society, whether by government programs, NGO efforts, international organizations, and so on. And it seems mm -hmm. you focused on something we might call spiritual capital or the impact of mm -hmm. religion and specifically Protestant or evangelical Christianity. Could you right. tell us a bit about this spiritual capital and why this stood out for you as opposed to other factors that impacted the development of nations? Uh, well, some of it I just sort of like fell into as part of my dissertation research. Um, a, a professor, well, when I was a graduate student, there was a famous professor that I was taking a class from called Ken Bolin, who did a lot of work on democracy. And one of the things he said in one of our classes was, I keep on finding this association between percent Protestant and democracy, both in terms of the level of democracy and the stability of democracy. And it's really robust, but everyone ignores it, um, or most people ignore it. And they look at sort of, you know, things related to class structure, et cetera. Um, and he said, there's another thing I find too, is that sort of former British colonies seem more democratic. Um, and I don't know why either of those things are, but I think they're probably causal and, and maybe someone should look at that. So, I mean, I just thought, oh, that's really interesting. And I thought a lot about uh, religion and I studied a lot of religious history. So I had ideas about white, you know, why something like that might exist. And then I was just trying to figure out historically what would be the arguments. And I was thinking, well, if something like that, if religion caused something like democracy, it's a very long, slow process. It's not like a five-year process. It's, so where would I get old data about religion? And um, so then I thought, well, maybe missionaries collected that kind of data. And so then I found all this old data that missionaries were um, compiling to do strategic planning. And um, then I, you know, spent more time working on it and I found more and more data. And then I thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And um, started to try and enter it and measure it. And then when I ran my first regressions, it was with fear and trepidation because I'd like invested a couple of years into like getting everything ready. And then it had this huge effect on all kinds of things. And I was like, wow, it's a lot, statistically a lot more powerful than I thought it would be. I mean, I thought it would be important, but like statistically it's, 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 it, the effects are huge. 
Um, so they it ended up being stronger statistically than I thought. But I like so that's sort of how I got into it. And um, well, let's look at a, an example then, because there's a lot of data points. You know, I've listened to your lectures and. I mean, mm -hmm. you talk about health, education, democracy. Yes. So why don't yes. we start with democracy? You know, uh, your research has sure. shown how the effect of the Protestant Christianity was statistically significant in the development of democracy and right. that the prevalence of missionaries explains half the variation of democracy in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Oceania. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit more, perhaps, you know, starting with uh, democracy, uh, how, sure. explaining how how that all kind of the impact that it had sure um well my argument is broader than just the impact of missions i use missions as sort of like a natural experiment so i basically argue that in the places where democracy developed in europe and north america um there's this association with Protestantism and not only origin of, of representative democracy, but also stable democratic transition. So in places like France, which has an early democratic transition, it's very unstable. And you find that pattern in Catholic countries throughout Latin America and Southern Europe, um, where the transitions to democracy, at least historically, were very unstable. Um, whereas in uh, Northwestern Europe and North America and Australia and New Zealand, the transitions to democracy were, were much more stable. Um, and then I look at the settler colonies and find a similar pattern where um, uh, Protestant settler colonies like the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand have democratized stably. And um, Catholic settler colonies like um, Chile, Uruguay, Argentina, and uh, Costa Rica have stabilized, have democratized less stably. They've been, there have been periods of democratization and then periods of uh, autocracy. Um, and then uh, looking at Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, there, by the time you get to the 90s, um, 1990s, the Catholic Church has made a transition where it becomes much more supportive of democracy in lots of different ways. Um, and there you get both Protestant and Catholic groups mobilizing for demo democratic change more than Orthodox and um, uh, Muslim groups. Um, and you also find more stable democratic transitions in Protestant and Catholic areas of both Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union than you do among Orthodox and Muslim areas. Um, so at least arguing that there's these religious patterns and then testing them with the spread of missions. So people who don't want to say that religion mattered in terms of why parts of Europe democratized earlier and stably, more stably, um, say, well, it's really something with land tenure or class structure or the relationship between the aristocracy and the crown or something. And I then I'd argue, well, well, that's testable through the spread of missionaries because missionaries didn't choose where they went based on the land tenure system. And they didn't choose where they went based on a relationship between the aristocracy and the crown. The, you know, access mattered and other things, but they're different issues than are used to say religion didn't matter in these other places. Um, and lo and behold, you find this very strong statistical association between missions and democracy in er areas even where people didn't convert to Protestantism. Um, and so then I look at the mechanisms through which that would work. 
And one of the mechanisms I talk about is separation of church and state, sort of twin toleration, where the state doesn't overly restrict religious groups and the religious groups don't overly control the state. Um, and look at how conversionary religious groups, particularly conversionary Protestant groups, helped create this, that twin tolerations um, between the state and religion. Um, and all these things I'm talking about, I'm talking about general rules. I'm not saying everyone did them. There's plenty of theocrats everywhere and secularists who want to destroy religion all over. So like <clears throat> Protestants are big group and they're a complicated group, but I'm just talking about the average thing. And also because Protestants wanted people to read the Bible in their own language, that mean, meant they pioneered mass education. So there was elite education all over the world, not just among Protestants, but Protestants wanted women to read and they wanted poor people to read because they wanted everyone to have direct access to the scriptures. And that was a transformational thing. That was a radically different thing, which now most people think, oh, that's good. That's normal. Everyone should be able to read. But historically, that wasn't considered normal. It was considered dangerous. Um, same thing with printing. So we think of printing as something that, like, once people know how to do it, of course they're going to do it. It's, you can make so many more books for, for so cheaply, and then you can have so much more access to information and science and technology and literature, all kinds of things. But we find historically that most societies knew how to print but didn't do it for hundreds of years. And the pattern of where printing spread was shaped by religion. And the pattern of where printing transformed from being an elite technology to a mass technology was shaped by religion. What I mean by that is um, some societies printed, but they mostly printed um, books for people who already had books. So it changed the number of books that people who had books had, but didn't radically change who had books. For Protestants, because of this idea for conversionary Protestants, for people who wanted everyone to read the Bible, they wanted everyone to have books, everyone, including poor people, which meant you had to have printing on a totally different scale. And that printing had to be cheap. The editions of the Bible had to be buyable. The, the editions of these tracts had to be buyable. They had to be inexpensive. Um, so I can maybe back up a bit, but printing was not developed in Europe. It was not Neither was movable font type, including metal movable font type. All of those were invented in East Asia. The only thing that Gutenberg invented for the first time was using a press to push down the movable font type onto paper. And the reason why that was valuable is because the paper in Western Europe was worse than the paper in East Asia. They didn't need to press it down because they had higher quality paper. Um, so the actual invention of what Gutenberg invented was, I mean, it was new to Europe, but it was not new to the world. Um, but it had a, a quite different effect in Europe than it had in East Asia. Um, East Asia had printing 600 to 800 years before Europe. Um, they had movable font type 60 to 80 years before Europe. Um, they had paper long before Europe. 
Um, but that printing technology only spread to Mahayana Buddhist societies. So it spread to China, Korea, Japan, Vietnam, Mongolia, and Tibet. So only Mahayana Buddhist societies copied them. There was plenty of trade between Theravada Buddhist societies, so Thailand, Burma, Cambodia, Laos, Sri Lanka, and China. There was plenty of trade with India, and there was plenty of trade with Muslims. And they copied paper. They copied the techniques for woodblock printing and used it to print cloth, but not to print books. When the Mongols invaded China, the ones who became Buddhist printed. The ones who became Muslim printed paper money, and they printed amulets. So they would take long segments of the Quran, like sometimes an entire surah, and they would print it on these long sheets, and they would fold them up and put them in a pouch around their neck and wear them. But nobody read them. So they're printing sacred texts, but they just take printing it for the magical purpose of it. Um, people didn't like, in the Muslim world, didn't like um, the paper money, so they stopped doing that. They did like the amulets, so that continued for hundreds of years. They also printed Hajj certificates, so when people go on the Hajj, they would print a picture of like the Kaaba and have some writing around it. But again, that wasn't for reading books. But they knew the technology. They had the paper way before Europe did. They just didn't use it for that purpose. Um, you know, and then th there's tons of exposure through Jews who fled persecution in, in Spain, who spread printing through North Africa and Central um, Asia and Turkey and Palestine. Catholic missionaries printed small numbers of texts, which people, they used to try and train priests and elites, but didn't do on a mass scale, so nobody copied them. They gave functioning printing presses with fonts to the Mughal emperor and the Persian emperor, and, and nobody used them. The people who copied them were Eastern Christians, so Armenians and um, uh, uh, Maronites and other groups like that. And they printed small numbers of texts to train priests mostly. Um, but again, then nobody else copied them. Then you get trade companies printing. They, nobody copies them. And then you get these Protestant missionaries going around who print 10, 000, tens of thousands of texts to try and convert people. And then all of a sudden, people in the Muslim world and the Hindu world and the Theravada, Theravada Buddhist world start to print. Um, so you can show historically this link. Same thing with terms of voluntary associations. Um, I hope I'm not talking too long without stopping so you can interrupt me. But, um, no, I, I just thought it was interesting. Uh, and something else you mentioned in your lectures, it's kind of an unintended uh, consequence where, uh, as you said, the Protestant missionaries started printing on a massive scale, which kind of um, pushed then everyone else. Kind of, you, you've mentioned it kind of right. became a competition. Yes, exactly. So um, the, 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 the crucial thing for Protestants was to be the catalyst. It doesn't mean that they always print more than other groups now. I mean, they don't. Same thing with education. They were this catalyst that spurred mass education. And then governments take over and other religious groups do that now. And in most places do more than Protestants do. Um, so they, they were this crucial religious catalyst that for religious reasons pioneered these changes, um, which then spread to other religious groups and governments. Um, and yeah. if I could go back uh, to the democratic aspect, there was also something that, that you've written and, and spoken about that was uh, interesting how 
missionary political uh, mobilization and techniques used for religious revival uh, had led to the, I'm not, I mean, you can explain this better. I'm not sure, sure. if I read it correctly, the founding of political parties or in other words, so again, greater democracy in various uh, countries. So can you give a, a few more examples of how, uh, you know, these uh, religious techniques spilled over into the political realm? Yeah, well, um, there's two the, scholars of um, sort of civil society or um, the voluntary sector or um, what's called the public sphere talk about the the um, particular types of techniques that are used for mobilizing political protest. So um, people writing petitions, people having marches with placards people forming associations which pressure political leaders, making boycotts, doing all these types of nonviolent um, ways to make political change. And those things, they, well, some of them develop in the, in the 1600s, uh, some others in the 1700s, but they sort of crystallize as a way of doing things in the early 1800s, mostly the 1820s and 1830s. Um, now, people have always had ways to um, pressure for things, but a lot of them were violent. So you could have a riot, you could um, secretly burn something down, you could make insult songs, you could do all kinds of, kind of things, things like that. But the sort of like systematic using nonviolent pressure tactics to um, change a government or change a policy are, are, are new, they're modern, like they're things that developed and crystallized in the 19th century. Um, and then people use them to reform uh, society. So to ban slavery, to try and restrict alcohol consumption, to have better treatment for animals, to, to reform the prison system, to fight corruption, various things like that. Um, so you get all these social movements in the 19th century. Um, and I show that these grow out of religious groups and religious techniques. So in particular, non-state religious groups, groups that aren't financed by the state, have to instill voluntarism and charity in the people in their, their religious group in order to survive because they can't tax. Um, and those habits and skills that people learn through that can be used for other types of organizations. Um, and then also conversionary missional revivalist religious groups, organized ways to try and bring people in. So they, they make these revivals and they would have public speakers that would speak for these large groups of people and try and get people to sign pledges and make commitments and various things like that. Well, <clears throat> over time, those develop into um, political rallies. They're using those same techniques for a non-religious purpose. Um, those organizational forms, which then are used for non-state um, non religious groups, can also be used for organizations that fight for abortion rights, you know, um, uh, choice, free choice in, in, um, or against abortion or for um, uh, animal rights or for the environment or for anything. Um, 
but they develop out of these particular religious movements. And then you can see that historically, you can also see that in terms of the spread of them internationally. So in the 1820s and 30s, you're seeing people use these same techniques in Calcutta, India. You're seeing like the Koshak, um, an indigenous community group in Southern Africa, using boycotts and protests and marches in the 1820s and 30s. People who try and say it's because of some sort of social structure and not because of religion say, oh, it's, you know, the state moving into the life world or the rise of the middle class or various types of things. But those techniques don't develop in continental Europe until northern continental Europe until the 1840s and much later in southern Europe. And it's hard to say that the Kosha in southern Africa or Bengalis in India had greater penetration of the state into their life world or a bigger middle class or any of these other things than people in Germany did. Um, uh, but it's, these, it's the greater prevalence of these non-state Protestant religious groups that pioneer um, those techniques and then spread them. And so when you look at, for example, the people who are leading the mo movement against slavery, abolitionism, uh, the temperance movement, the animal rights movement, the prison reform movement, the um, movement against corruption in England, etc. They're the same people who are on the mission boards. It's exactly the same people. Um, uh, so there's this close link between these sort of missional revivalistic religious groups and these reform movements, at least in the 19th century. Over time, it becomes detached. And um, obviously, you know, Religious groups are not always on in favor of things that I would be in favor of um, currently, but um, they 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 pioneered these techniques which allowed people a nonviolent way to pressure for them, and which lots of people uh, use now. And you you know you explain like, like this, I, it never really came to mind. But when we look at today's like political rallies, especially in the U.S you can clearly see the connection between the, the religious uh, revivals uh, and rallies. Mm -hmm. And just to play a little bit of, you know, uh, to look at the criticism and the devil's uh, advocacy. Um, sure. What, what uh, is some crit criticism that people have given you, uh, for example, um, looking at other religions or ideologies that if mm -hmm. they have had similar effects as Protestant Christianity, I know you've mentioned, so Catholicism, uh, yes. But, you know, whether looking at atheism, Marxism, Hinduism, mm -hmm. uh, which you, uh, I think you've mentioned Buddhism, Islam. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you looked uh, deeply into that comparison or, or have you had criticism on, on those fronts? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of this is a controversial argument. I think there's tons of evidence for it, but some people don't like it to want it to be true. And certainly the pushback is both before I published on this and afterwards has been quite hard. Um, and so the level of evidence that you have to give is, is extra <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> we can talk about that if you want, um, you know, how hard it is to publish on this topic. Um, but some arguments have to do with sort of like secularism being crucial to democracy and rights, for example. Um, and Looking, for example, at um, Northwestern Europe or Scandinavia and saying these societies now are pretty secular, 
by world standards. Um, so maybe secularism is what's crucial for democracy. Um, the, the difficulty is um, if you look at the percent non-religious in societies, it's negatively related with democracy. Now, a lot of that is through communism or Marxism. Um, but also historically, they were not the people who drove um, a lot of these religious, a lot of these changes in terms of mass education, mass printing, uh, voluntary associations, colonial reform, etc. Um, but they, secularism has increased in particularly state church Protestant societies, but even broader than that, um, in places where you have stable democracy and provision of social services. Um, uh, but I think the causal direction is uh, not from secularism to democracy, but um, that these things develop as people, I mean, I'm not a, a scholar of secularism, but possibly um, in contexts where you have state churches, um, state Protestant churches, and in contexts where there's broad provision of social services and many of the revivalist groups left. So for example, Scandinavia, a lot of the revivalist groups went to the Americas and elsewhere. Another critique has been um, sort of the Catholic church um, saying, well, you know, the Catholic church has been very important in democratization movements in the Philippines, in Poland, um, in uh, various countries around the world. And I agree they have. But um, I think that's a change over time. So um, I'm simplifying a, a, a little bit, and I can get into some of the complexity if you want to. But um, certainly during the 19th century and the, the early 20th century, the Catholic Church was not, did not promote democracy on a in a consistent way. Um, in Vatican I, it was condemned as anathema, um, as well as separation of church and state. Um, uh, in the context of the competition between uh, Enlightenment groups and the Catholic Church in Latin America and Southern Europe, uh, the Catholic Church often associated itself with conservative groups um, to try and defend itself from the attack of anti-clerical Enlightenment uh, liberals. And so you tended to get this life and death struggle between Enlightenment, quote-unquote, liberals and um, uh, Catholic and other conservatives, um, which created this unstable democratic transitions. And, and the, quote-unquote, Enlightenment liberals were not liberal in the sense of uh, tolerant of people who disagreed with them. They tried to crush the Catholic Church and religious liberty, generally. So like in the early 20th century in France, they kicked out all the religious orders except for six. They shut down all the seminaries except for two. They banned any um, religious group from any form of education. They confiscated all the Catholic schools, all kinds of stuff, which I don't think of being as liberal. It is destroying your enemy. Um, which is, and it created this sort of life or death struggle. But over time, the Catholic Church, the experience of um, North America and other societies where the Catholic Church did great, 
despite not being a state church and not having state funding and having to compete with Protestants and others, um, that people learned, okay, well, it, our, the church can do fine in this context of religious liberty. And so in Vatican II, there was a transformation where um, the close relationship with the state was no longer the goal. You get increased focus on Bible reading. You get increased courses of the Catholic Church during mass education and staying in education when Protestants have stepped out of it and let the government do it. Um, and with uh, Pope Paul, John Paul II coming out of a communist context and supporting groups like Solidarity, um, <clears throat> actively uh, promoting democracy. And then once you get that transition, the Catholic Church, because it has this global hierarchical organization. It has the ability to resist oppression in a way that smaller groups don't. So if you kill a Catholic bishop, um, the world's going to know about it, and there will be costs that you have to pay. If you kill a local Pentecostal pastor, it may just disappear. Nothing happens. So it gives these hierarchical religions, once they start to promote democracy, they have a lot more power to actually do something about it. And, and the ability to actually push for change in ways that all these diverse Protestant groups have a hard time organizing to do. So over time, the Catholic Church has become a strong advocate of democracy and um, has been good at promoting it in places like Eastern Europe and the Philippines. Um, so my argument is not that it's Protestants forever always being more democratic. It, my argument is that Protestants spurred things. And then as other groups copy them, it has the same effect. And then also Protestantism changes too. And so, you know, Pentecostals might not be as, uh, they may not have the same effect in terms of fostering democracy as say Calvinists did. Um, other critiques, so that's change over time is one critique. Another critique is measures. So why did I use a particular measure of democracy by Boland and Paxton, which um, at the time I thought was the best measure, but then they just stopped um, making new years of it. So um, it stopped um, in the early 90s. And so people have questioned, why did I use that rather than another measure, which I can explain, but that gets a little bit technical for some listeners. Um, and then other arguments have just been, uh, more ad hominem. Uh, so I'm a religious person. And so then people will say, well, you're a religious person, you're Protestant. So of course you think this, um, and view that as like undermining the evidence for, uh, that I've presented, um, which is, well, you need to deal with the evidence. You need to deal with the history and the statistics, and, and then you can attack me as a person. But uh, the other doesn't uh, um, negate the evidence. Well, I mean, I think we could say the same for, you know, pe people with the, the, the other ideologies, whether it's like the secular ide ideology. I mean, they will have that same bias. And so... Um, sure. We're, we're, we're all shaped by our background, and that makes us sensitive to see certain things and not see certain things. And my background being a, a Protestant and thinking religion matters, um, 
made me ask certain questions and check certain things. And I found uh, evidence, which I think is quite strong. Um, if someone else's background and biases makes that uncomfortable to them, then their task is to find historical and statistical evidence that contradicts the evidence that I found. Um, but no, no scholar is unbiased and no research project is unbiased. No statistics are unbiased and no history is unbiased. They're all, they're all shaped by our backgrounds and the, the assumptions that we bring to it. Um, the question is, if, is, can you marshal a lot of evidence that's, that's hard to critique in, especially if you're trying to be fair, like if you're, if you're recognizing complexity, you're being open about what you're doing. Um, uh, it gives people the ability to, to come in and find another perspective and push for it. It's just so far, I haven't um, seen anything that's very convincing. And there was something uh, that I thought about as you were talking, uh, the book, Why Nations Fail. Uh, and for me, it kind of, it is it kind of overlaps with what you talk about where, uh, I mean, that's a famous book that talks about why, you know, some countries fail and why others succeed. And they talk a lot about the rule of law uh, institutions. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be kind of related to what you're talking about, where we have uh, people come in uh, like the, the Protestants and they're, you know, push, trying to teach people how to read, uh, you know, establishing right. kind of institutions and, and, and systems. And mm -hmm. I mean, just giving my, my, even my own, you know, informal perspective, I've lived all uh, around the world and I've got like three passports and speak a couple languages. And <laughs> I, I can clearly kind of see what you're talking about, where I've lived in countries that have had a more, you know, let's say some type of Protestant presence and others that were, I'm, I'm living in a former communist country uh, right. right now and in, in Catholic countries. And, you know, taking the, the research you're, you've done and then looking at why nations mm -hmm. fail and then comparing, mm -hmm. I can clearly see, like, the difference in the, 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 the infrastructure, the, the, the development, the level of corruption. I mean, I, I think mm -hmm. from my own just informal experience, I can kind of see what you're talking about. Yeah, when you, when you travel around the world and you cross these cultural uh, boundaries, you can see real differences. One of the things that I did when I was a graduate student and I was first sort of exploring that, these ideas is I traveled across West Africa and I traveled across Asia to see if the patterns changed where I thought they should. So um, if you look across West Africa, you have Ghana, then you have Togo, then you have Benin, and then you have Nigeria. The British had uh, Ghana and Nigeria. The British kept missionaries out of the north because they didn't want to anger Muslims, but they allowed them in the south. Togo was originally a German colony and then taken over by the French. The British got part of it, which that became part of Ghana. And then the French always had been in, well, always since the 1880s. The French restricted missionaries and um, particularly non-French missionaries, which meant virtually all Protestant missionaries. When you go from northern Ghana to southern Ghana, you find a big difference. When you go from Ghana to Benin, I mean to Togo and Benin, you find a big difference in the availability of books, in uh, the educational, it, it, all kinds of things change 
quite radically at the border, and you're talking about the same ethnic communities. Um, and so then when you go to Nigeria and you go from the south to the north, you see a similar change. And so then you can say, if it's British colonialism, it should be British that look different. If it's um, missions, it should look different in the southern part of both of those countries, but not in the north. And that's when I traveled around West Africa, that's what I found. And then I did similar things with um, going across Asia. And part of it is I just like to travel. <laughs> it's fun. But part of it was like trying to figure out if like on the ground, these arguments work. And then I also wanted to ask local people, local academics and scholars and intellectuals, if my arguments made sense to them. Um, and they did. Um, and so that was very encouraging to me before I had all the sort of historical and statistical evidence that I have now, um, just in figuring some of those things out. And I had great conversations with some really, really smart people who are very thoughtful about their own societies. And uh, it was quite interesting. And I wanted to uh, get into a little bit more about empire, because after all, the, the podcast uh -huh. is called Geopolitics and Empire. Uh, but uh -huh. One question I had was, you know, looking at some key individuals that that you had perhaps in your in your research, and you know, when people who criticize, you know, whether it's the British Empire or the American Empire, right. um, I think they tend to conflate. Uh, you know, there's a lot of this talk about, especially today, this white supremacy. You know, the white man's uh, burden. And they're conflating a lot of the times, I think, the evils of empire, which there are plenty of them. <laughs> We've covered that yes. on this podcast, but they conflate a lot of that with um, Protestant missionaries. And, you know, some of the ones that some of the actors who I think have changed the world in the face uh, of the empire, uh, you know, we had William uh, Wilberforce, who was this, yes. I think, ev evangelical uh, politician who essentially ended the, the slave trade in the British Empire single-handedly, if I'm not mistaken, then we had the German... Not single-handedly, but oh. he was part of it, yeah. Uh -huh. And then the German Lutheran pastor, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was the anti-Nazi dissident who, you know, fought against Hitler and was, was killed by the Nazi regime. And then, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who used, as you said, the principle of nonviolence to bring about positive changes in the political system and culture. So uh, if you can speak a little bit uh, about that. Sure. I mean, there's all kinds of evidence that British colonies are better on average than other former colonies and non-colonized areas, even looking at right at the border. Um, but I don't think that has much to do with the British. Um, the British were as greedy and violent um, as anyone else. They dominated the slave trade until they were forced to abandon it um, through a massive pressure campaign that grew out of British restrictions on religious liberty. We often think that there's close relationship between colonizers and missionaries. That wasn't true in British colonies for the most part. Now there's times when it was, but those are limited. So originally when Quakers first started to evangelize slaves, they were the first. They, in Barbados, they, it, they passed a law that if you invited a black person to church or tried to convert them, you had, would conf you, your, half your property would be confiscated and given to the person who turned you into the police. So it was an active attempt to stop 
missions among slaves. They didn't not want them to be Christianized. They didn't want them to be educated. They didn't want them to be to form into groups. Um, when the British, when missions develop as a sort of a broader movement in the 1790s and early 1800s, the Anglican Church, the elite, resisted it and wouldn't ordain clergy to become missionaries. And so they had to get German missionaries to go for them. They tried to send them to British colonies. The government wouldn't allow them to go to British colonies. So the earliest British missionaries had to go to Danish colonies. So Surampur in India and Trabancor in India um, and uh, Virgin Islands uh, in, the, in the Caribbean. Um, and so they had to block the British East India Company charter. They tried in 1793 and failed, and then they succeeded in 1813. They weren't allowed into British colonies until they blocked the British East India Company charter and refused to let that pass until missionaries were allowed in British colonial territories. That's not the British government or the trade companies trying to promote missions. They didn't. Then in the process of trying to do mission work, it mobilized the abolitionist movement. So the early missionaries were instructed to stay out of politics, just work among evangelism. You need the slave owner's permission to work with slaves. But the problem is that the literate slave, slave leaders that the missionaries trained and organized were the people who led slave uprisings. Um, and then they kept on trying to shut down missions. And so this, then James Stephen, who was the uh, legal, in charge of um, the legal matters for the colonial office, and Lord Glenelg, both of whom were evangelicals linked to the Clapham sect, were trying to force the British colonies to allow religious liberty, to allow missionaries to have access to those territories and also to work among slaves. Um, and that struggle radicalized people over time until they eventually decided that slavery and missions were incompatible and mobilized for the abolition of, of slavery. Um, I can go into more details if you want me to. Um, later on, after you get rid of slavery, the abuse of black people in the Caribbean is, is still terrible. And missionaries, for example, got the governor of Jamaica put on trial for murder. <laughs> For killing black people. They got the British government to give back land to South African tribe that they won in a war. They tried to keep white settlers out of what became Botswana and Lesotho, but like through these massive pressure campaigns, which alienated them from white settlers. You know, not everyone was Great. I mean, there were racist missionaries. There's all kinds of things. But like this idea that like missionaries and colonial governments, at least in the British case, were just buddy buddy is is ludicrous. If you know the history, it's ideology, not history. Now, there were there was cooperation at times. So th they didn't always fight. But, you know, it's 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 a it's um. They each have their own interests, and they're, when those interests overlap, they cooperate, and when those interests don't overlap, they fight. And that's a better understanding of the relationship between missions and colonizers, at least in the British case. In, in Spanish and Portuguese and French and Italian cases, it's a little bit more complex, but it also changes over time. So certainly early on um, in the 1500s, 
and early 1600s, it's the Catholic religious orders that are protesting against the abuses that Spanish and Portuguese settlers and colonial officials are doing against indigenous people. The problem in that case is that you have what's called the patronado or the padralo, where the, the, the Pope had given the Spanish and Portuguese crowns the right to nominate the bishops and to pay the salaries of the clergy. So they were able to shut down missionaries, Catholic missionaries, who protested. Um, when the Pope tried to ban slavery of indigenous people in the Americas, um, Charles V invaded Rome and forced the Pope to recant and made a rule that you could not promulgate any decree in the Americas that didn't first go through the Council of the Indies. So, both directions. So it, it like cut down that bridge that um, members of Catholic religious orders had had with the Pope, which they had tried to mobilize to, to restrain abuses and shut that down for in, into the 20th century. So then in the 19th and early 20th century, when Protestants protest movements, Catholics mostly did not, um, partially because of how things develop for these political reasons. And so, so this, this idea that they've always just sort of cooperated and that missions is just a hand of colonialism is absurd historically. And I wanted to, as we're slowly running out of time, I did want to kind of fast forward a bit to you know, 2020, where we are today, because I think the research that you have done, I think you might have a little bit of, um, you know, interesting insight into what's, what's happening right now. Uh, if you could comment, perhaps, uh, so y y you've spoken of where Protestant Christianity came and they created a catalyst that kind of mm -hmm. went off on its own. And then right. th those cultures kind of continued to that development do you see kind of like the reverse where today we have uh, in Europe and the U.S., which had a strong, you know, Christian Protestant presence and mm -hmm. which is rapidly um, declining? Uh, do you see kind of have you seen the reverse where you once had this Protestant Christian presence culturally with a certain number of believers? And then as it recedes, you have a decline of democracy or an increase in economic uh, inequality and so on. Um, well, when we get closer to the present, I've done less research. So the types of things I would say are more speculative. Um, it's unclear to me um, Certain things might need a religious justification, other things might not. So if you think of a catalyst, you can bring about a chemical change, and if that chemical change is stable, all you needed was the catalyst. Um, so for example, voluntary associations or mass education, once that was catalyzed by Protestantism, you might not need Protestantism for those things to continue. Other things might require some type of religious or quasi-religious justification and not that, you know, so for example, a justification of human rights, okay, the, the idea, at least long-term, the idea that all people are created by God and therefore have unalienable rights that they have as human beings, regardless of their ability to produce, 
and regardless of whether they are genetically related to me or whether they are genetic competitors to me. You cannot base that idea on evolution. That is a religious idea. And historically, it was very much a religious idea where in the 19th century, missionaries were attacked for thinking that black people were the same species and capable of, uh, of abstract thought or formal education. They were attacked by that, by people who were promoting Darwinist ideas and polygenist ideas. Um, but anyways, that's a religious idea. It's held now by many people who are not religious. Um, but there's no justification for it that's not religious. At least I haven't been able to convince of one. Maybe that may dissipate over time without a religious justification. I, I don't know. It doesn't mean that secular people don't believe it now. Many of them do. Um, and some of them are more consistent on it than some Christians. But um, I don't know what their theoretical justification for it is. The idea that people have the right to be wrong. So the religious idea, which it developed for religious reasons of, of religious toleration, where people have the right to be wrong because forced religion doesn't save anyone. Only true faith saves you. So therefore, why force it? They have the right to be wrong. They have the right to practice a religious faith that you think to be completely wrong and you may think leads people to go to hell. Um, that was, that idea originated among nonconformists for religious reasons. I see now at least an undermining in the idea that, uh, which could be a liberal idea of that people have the right to be wrong and say and argue what they think, even if it's, I think it's wrong. There, there's increasing, I think, trying to shut down and silence people who have a different point of view. Um, and I think that's dangerous. And I think it's wrong. Even if I vehemently disagree with someone, they have the right to, to advocate what they think. And I need to argue with them with argument and not with force, not with attempts to silence them. Um, we'll see. I, I, I don't know which ideas. It's still early in the process. Um, change takes a long time. I suspect some of those things may diminish without religious motivation for them, whereas other ones won't. But I just don't know which ones will and which ones won't. Well, um, so you're, if you have any other things you'd like to, to mention that we haven't mentioned, uh, I, I think, again, to summarize, you know, you wrote the seminal paper, The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. Uh, I believe you've also stated that, you know, Protestant, Protestantism is one of the main drivers of uh, modernity. So I don't know if you mm -hmm. want to kind of, there's something that you think is important that we should know, or, you know, what's kind of the key takeaway of that research that, that you want to. The key takeaway is that what people believe and what they think matters, it changes. It can over the long term change the world. It can change class structure, etc. cetera. Um, uh, 
so it matters what we think, it matters what we believe, and it matters that um, we allow different people to advocate for things that we think are wrong. And even if now there's a religious group or a secular group that we think is stupid um, or should be shut up, that was what people thought in the past about many of the religious groups that pioneered things that we now value. So Quakers and Methodists and people like that were the religious fanatics of their day. They were the crazy people. They were the people who couldn't shut up and just keep their religion to themselves and tried to convert other people and were willing to make people uncomfortable for arguing things that they thought were true. Um, but they pioneered abolitionism. They pioneered voluntary associations, private, um, you know, nonviolent protest movement techniques, all kinds of things. Even the right of the jury trial to not be condemned by the, um, influenced by the judge was again, the Quakers who were trying to do street evangelism and got shut down and put in prison for violating, you know, a law. And then the jury didn't find them guilty because they said they weren't hurting anyone. They were just trying to convert, you know, change people's minds peacefully. And so the judge put them in prison without food or a toilet um, until they came up with the proper uh, verdict. And that um, case was thrown out and the, or the judge was reprimanded for doing that. That became the foundation of the, the jury having independence from the judge. You know, all these things that we value came from defending the, the, the right of being able to be a nonviolent conscious objector, okay? Those all came from groups that we thought were religious fanatics. So we have to be careful in what we do to people that we disagree with now, because if the dominant communities, the dominant intellectual communities had won in the 1600s and 1700s, we wouldn't have, in 1800s, we wouldn't have the rights that we value now. So that's one of the takeaways from it. And we never know which group is going to help create rights and resources that are valuable in the future. And I think that's especially important considering what's happening right now uh, in the U.S. And it's, it's quite a, it's a frightening, frightening time. Yeah. But um, I don't know if you have any final thought. Oh, it's I'm I'm appalled with lots of the things that are happening in the United States right now, um, including some things that religious groups are doing in the name of religion. Um, uh, I'm not a fan of Trump at all, if that's not obvious. And um, I'm concerned about how blacks and minorities are treated in our country. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult time. I don't know. I don't fully know what to do in the short run. Uh, but um, I hope things get better then I will do my best to fight for them to get better. All right. Um, what are the best websites for listeners to find uh, your work? I don't think you have a 
strong social presence, but are there, um, is there any website? I mean, people can find your work in, in, in journals. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm an academic. I've written mostly for academics. Um, so the articles I've written, you can find at researchgate.com or um, academia.edu. Um, increasing, there'll be some on a site, prec.com, which is the project website. Again, most of the, those are, they're, they're accessible. I try to write in as accessible form as possible and avoid jargon, but I'm still, I'm writing for academics. There is a Christianity Today article of where people, someone else has summarized my research and interviewed other people about it, which is written on a popular level. Um, but I, I, I haven't focused on sort of popular media stuff. So some of it has to be, you know, you have to be willing to read an academic article to get directly what I wrote, but other people have written about it in a more popular way. Just not me. All right. Uh, I'll put those links uh, in the description of the interview. And, you know, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you, uh, Dr. Woodbury. And uh, we hope, you know, you continue to excel uh, in the work that you're doing. And thank you again for coming on Geopolitics and Empire. You're welcome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.